Wisdom from Above with Dr. Harlan Betts. Hey there, podcast friends. Welcome back to Wisdom from Above, where we go beyond the reasoning of men to the revelation of God. We've gone back to the beginning. We investigated creation. We dissected the fall. Now we're studying the flood. Today is the third of a four-part series on the Noahic flood. In Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 8, we saw God's sorrow. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 to 22, we discovered God's plan. Today, in Genesis chapter 7, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 19, we will see God's grace. God's Word is our final authority for what we believe and for how we behave. Sadly, people don't always have the right attitude towards the truths of God's Word. Some have the cod liver oil attitude. I can't stand it, but I know it's good for me. Some have the super glue attitude. A little dab will do. Some have the shredded wheat attitude. It's good, but it's dry. Some have the silver and gold attitude. I just can't get enough of it. You have to decide where you are going to stand with regard to the Word of God. You can stand away from it, belittle it, and forget it. You can stand against it, battle it, and fight it. Or you can stand on it, bow to it, and follow it. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3-7 to give us this insight. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. According to this passage, there are people who willfully forget. Or, as the RSV has it, they deliberately ignore. What is it that they willfully forget and deliberately ignore? The worldwide flood. Paul describes it this way. They are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Charles Ryrie says, Nature, though it does reveal some things about God, is limited and can be misread by mankind. The only infallible canon for determining the truth is the written word of God. So that's where we go to find truth. We go to the word of God, the scripture the Holy Bible. Now, rather than going through chapters 7 and 8, verse by verse, I want to use these chapters to answer questions that you may be asking about Noah and the ark and the flood. Question number one. How many animals of each kind did Noah take on the ark? Well, the general instruction in chapter 6, verses 19 to 21 is that 
there should be a male and female of each kind in order to preserve the species. The specific instruction in chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, is unclean animals by twos, a male and female of each kind, and clean animals by sevens. This would provide three pair of each kind of clean animal for propagation and one clean animal of each kind for sacrifice. We know that from chapter 8, verse 20. Question number two. How could Noah get all those animals on the ark? The ark was 450 feet long by 75 feet wide by 45 feet high using the 18-inch cubit. There were three decks. This equals 1,518,750 cubic feet and it is 101,250 square feet. A standard railroad stock car contains 2,670 cubic feet effective capacity. So the ark held the carrying capacity of 569 railroad stock cars. According to Ernst Mayer, probably the leading American systematic taxonomist, there are about a million species. A million animal species. This is from Dobzhansky's book, Genetics and the Origin of Species. Of that total, the following number of species were marine animals and did not need to be taken on the ark. 88,000 mollusks, that would include mussels, clams, oysters, etc. 18,000 kinds of fish. 15,000 kinds of protozoans, microscopic single-celled creatures, mostly marine. 10,000 cholinderates, like corals, sea anemones, jellyfish, hydroids. 5,000 sponges. 4,700 echinoderms, like starfish, sea urchins, etc. And 1,700 tunicates marine cordates like sea squirts, etc. So, this eliminates 142,000 species of animals, marine creatures, from those Noah would have to take on the ark. Two other groups must now be considered, arthropods and the worms. There are 815,000 species of arthropods, but a large number of arthropods, such as lobsters, shrimps, crabs, water fleas, and barnacles, are marine creatures. And many of the insect species of the arthropod could have survived outside the ark. Of the 25,000 species of worms, many could have survived outside the ark. For the purpose of this episode, this uh, podcast, we're going to assume that 500,000 species of arthropods and worms had to be in the ark. 21 railroad cars would suffice for over 1 million insects and worms. 
So we need at least 21 railroad cars for the arthropods and worms. Then there are 3,500 species of mammals, 8,600 species of birds, 5,500 species of reptiles and amphibians. This makes a total of 17,600 species of vertebrate animals that has to be taken on the ark. A total of 35,200 animals. Now, please remember that of these 17,600 species, there are actually many that are marine mammals. Whales, seals, porpoises, etc., and many other marine amphibians. But at least 240 sheep-sized animals could be accommodated in a standard two-decked stock car. All 35,000 vertebrate animals on the ark could be carried in 146 stock cars. If we add another 7,000 clean animals to this number, we need another 29 stock cars. So this gives us a total of 196 railroad stock cars needed to carry all of the animals. Now remember, the Ark had the capacity of 569 railroad stock cars. So this leaves 100 stock cars for food, 100 stock cars for water storage, 100 stock cars for range, and 73 stock cars for the eight people. That allows each couple to have a 3,300-square-foot apartment in the ark. So clearly there's plenty of room in the ark. Now you might be asking, uh, well, how could eight people handle the feeding, watering, and manure removal for such a large number of animals? The animal world has two powerful means for coping with unfavorable environmental conditions. Migration where they move away from the difficult climate or weather or temperature, and hibernation, where they store themselves away from the adverse climate or weather or conditions. Uh, hibernation, there's kind of two forms of that. There's cold weather called hibernation and hot weather called estivation. But in hibernation, there's no eating or drinking. But it's more than just sleeping. It involves slowed breathing, slowed heart rate, slowed metabolism. And the same with estivation. It's a prolonged torpor or dormancy of an animal. And hibernation or estivation occurs in every group of vertebrates except birds. This is revealed in... uh, by W.P. Pycraft in Hibernation, Encyclopedia Britannica. And the hibernation periods could have been alternated among animal groups. Question number three. What was the duration of the flood? According to Genesis 7.11, Noah was 600 years old. In the second month and 17th day of the year, when the flood started. And according to Genesis 8.14, Noah is 601 years old in the second month and 27th day of the year when the flood was over. 
So here's the chronology of the flood. 40 days when the floodgates of the sky were opened. Genesis 7, 11, and 12. 110 days when the fountains of the deep opened. Genesis 7, 11, and 24. 74 days the water receded. Chapter 8, verse 5. 40 days Noah waited and sent out the raven. Chapter 8, 6, and 7. Seven days Noah waited and seven out, sent out the dove. Chapter 8, verse 8. Seven days Noah waited and sent out the dove again. Another dove. Chapter 8, verse 10. Seven days Noah waited and then sent out. It's actually that same dove again. And then 29 days, and Noah waited and removed the top, chapter 8, verse 13. Then 57 days, Noah waited for the waters to recede and then disembarked. So we have a total of 371 days. 150 days rising and flooding, 221 days receding. 371 days is the length of the flood, just a little bit over one year. Question number four, and this is a significant question. What was the depth of the flood? That is, was it universal, covering the entire earth, or was it partial, being just a local flood? It is clear from the scripture that the flood was universal, It is clear from the scripture that the flood covered the entire earth and every part of the earth, every piece of land, every hill, every mountain, everything was covered by the flood. And it's clear that the flood was universal for at least seven reasons. Number one, the purpose of God. God declared that he would wipe out all of mankind because of their wickedness and corruption in Genesis 6, 5-7 and verses 11-13. to 13. Not just the people of a city or a region or a country or a continent, but all of mankind. This is clearly a worldwide flood, a universal flood. Reason number two, the saving of animals. God had Noah take a pair of each animal on the ark in order to preserve the species because all non-marine animals would be destroyed by the flood. Chapter 6, verse 17, and chapter 7, verse 3. Reason number three, the depth of the flood. God declared that he was going to bring a flood on the earth that would destroy everything on the earth. Chapter 6, verse 17. And the scriptures declared that the floodwaters rose to a height of 20 feet higher than the highest mountains. Chapter 7, verses 19 and 20. This was no local flood. This was a universal, worldwide flood. Reason number four, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Jesus stated that the flood destroyed all men except Noah's family. Luke 17, 26 to 30, and Matthew 24, verse 39. Reason number five, the declaration of Peter. Peter, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote that Noah and his family were the only ones that escaped the judgment waters, 1 Peter 3.20 and 2 Peter 2.5. Reason number six, the totality of destruction. 
every living thing that was on the face of the land, from man to animals, the creeping things, the birds of the sky, were blotted out from the earth. Genesis 7, 21 to 23. And the final reason, number seven, the seventh reason, that it was a worldwide flood is the promise of God. The covenant of the rainbow and the promise of never again destroying the earth with a flood and never again destroying all mankind and animals with a flood can only be understood in terms of a universal flood. Genesis 9, 8 to 17. To say this was a local flood and a promise of there being no more local floods makes God a liar and a promise breaker. So it's very clear that the depth of the flood was over everything in 20 feet higher than the highest mountain. It was a worldwide universal flood. Question number five. How could there be enough water to flood the entire earth, even to the point of covering the highest mountains? Well, the answer is that there were two major miraculous catastrophes that account for the tremendous amount of water that covered the earth. The first major miraculous catastrophe is the release of waters from above, Genesis 7, verse 11. The huge water canopy spoken of in Genesis chapter 1, verse 7, was allowed to collapse and come down upon the earth over a period of almost six weeks. This water canopy had caused the entire earth to be a sort of greenhouse. Up until this time, there had never been rain. The earth was watered by a mist that came up from the earth, Genesis 2, verses 5 and 6. If all the water vapor and clouds in our present atmosphere precipitated to the earth, the rain would only last a few hours and would produce an average depth of less than two inches. The second major miraculous catastrophe is the release of waters from below, Genesis 7, verse 11. This involved the uplift of oceanic basins accompanied by enormous explosions of sub-oceanic and subterranean magmas and steam. Very likely it was at this time that the earth tilted on its axis. The mountains of the world before the flood were much lower than those of our present world. This breaking up and upheaval of the ocean floor and the earth's crust continued for five months with earthquakes, volcanoes, sliding of earth's crust for 150 days. Now, to help us better understand the destructive power of moving water, I want to illustrate from the following incidents recorded in the Genesis Flood by Whitcomb and Morris. A simple brief local flood in Johnstown, Pennsylvania in 1889 when 20,000 tons of water from the Connemaw Lake swept into the city and killed 2,200 people. In South America, in May of 1970, an avalanche of water, rocks, and mud rushing nearly 100 miles an hour down the slopes of the Andes totally buried the Peruvian cities of Yungay and Rajerca with their 14 thousand inhabitants all buried. At Cherbourg, France, storm waves hurled 7,000 pound stones over a 20 foot high wall and moved 65 ton concrete blocks 60 feet 
The Great Krakatoa earthquake in the East Indies in 1883 created waves at least 100 feet high, traveling 450 miles an hour, inundating islands and drowning 40,000 people. In 1946, a tsunami tidal wave originating from a quake in the Aleutian Islands traveled 470 miles an hour across the Pacific Ocean, creating a 19-foot-high tidal wave on the shores of Hawaii with great destruction. A tsunami tidal wave that swept across the Bay of Bengal in 1876 left 200,000 people dead. A 25-foot-high tidal wave driven by winds 100 to 150 miles an hour rolled into the overcrowded lowlands of the Ganges-Brahmaputra River Delta in the dead of night. Three and one-half million people were left homeless, and most reliable estimates put the number of dead at half a million. In contrast to those local floods, in Noah's day there was a universal flood that wiped out the entire population of the earth. Quoting from the Genesis Flood, page 26, on population at that time, which was approximately 1,700 years, after, uh, with approximately 1,700 years between Adam and the flood, with two generations still living, there was a population of about 1 billion people. Question number six. What were the physical effects of the flood? Ten of the implied physical changes after the flood are as follows, according to Henry Morris and John Morris. By the way, Henry Morris isn't my neighbor. He has a Ph.D. in engineering. He is president emeritus of the Institute for Creation Research. He is the author of over 45 books. And John Morris has a Ph.D. in geological engineering and is also the author of numerous books. Here are the implied physical changes after the flood. 1. The oceans were more extensive since they now contained all the waters which were once above the firmament and in the subterranean reservoirs of the Great Deep. 2. Land areas were much less extensive than before the flood, with a much greater portion of its surface uninhabitable for this reason. 3. The thermal vapor blanket had been dissipated so that strong temperature differentials were inaugurated, leading to a gradual buildup of snow and ice in the polar latitudes and rendering much of the extreme north and southern land surfaces as essentially uninhabitable. 4. Mountain ranges uplifted after the flood emphasized the more rugged topography of the post-Diluvian continents, with many of these regions also becoming unfit for human habitation. 5. Winds and storms, rains and snow were possible now, thus rendering the total environment less congenial to man and animals than had once been the case. 6. The environment was also more hostile because of harmful radiation from space, no longer filtered out by the vapor canopy resulting, along with other contributing environmental factors, in a gradual reduction in human longevity after the flood. 7. Tremendous glaciers, rivers, and lakes existed for a time, with the world only gradually approaching its present state of semi-aridity. 8. Because of the tremendous physiographic and isostatic movements generated by the collapse of the subterranean caverns and the post-flood uplifts, the crust of the earth was in a state of general instability, reflected in recurrent volcanic and seismic activity all over the world for many centuries and continuing in some day, degree even to the present. 9. The lands were barren of vegetation 
until such time as plant life could be reestablished through sprouting seeds and cuttings buried beneath the surface. And 10. There is even a possibility that the Earth tilted on its axis and the Earth's rotation speeded up by about 1.5%, changing the year from 360 days to 365 days. And our last question, question number seven. How was God's grace displayed in the flood? You know, it might seem to some that the flood just shows God's judgment and wrath. But in reality, a careful look at the flood also shows God's salvation and grace. How was God's grace seen in the flood? Let me suggest seven ways. One, God's long-suffering grace. In chapter 6-3, he waited 120 years after declaring that he was going to bring the flood. Two, God's revelatory grace. Second Peter 2.5, we have Noah preaching for 120 years, giving people an opportunity. Three, God's saving grace. Chapter 7.1, the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark. Even as Jesus now says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy loaded with care. Four, God's persisting grace. Chapter 7, verse 4. After seven more days, I will cause it to rain. Number 5. God's sealing grace. In chapter 7, verse 16. The Lord shut him in. Number 6. God's faithful grace. Chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah and every living thing in the ark. And number seven, God's loving grace. Chapter 8, verse 13 to 15. God, God said, Go out of the ark, you and your family. Bring out all the animals that they may abound. Be fruitful and multiply. As we wrap up this episode, I want to go back to the passage we looked at right at the outset of this episode. Chapter Second Peter, chapter 3. And I'm going to share a couple practical lessons that come to my mind. From 2 Peter 3, 3-7, don't ignore the facts. Peter warns that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of Jesus coming? Everything's the same as it was from the beginning. And Peter goes on to point out that these scoffers will forget that the world that existed in Noah's day perished being flooded with water. You see, scoffers mock the idea of judgment in Noah's day, and they're mocking the idea of judgment in our day. Those people willfully, there are people who willfully forget or deliberately ignore the facts of the flood. They willfully forget that God does intervene in human affairs. As for the destruction of the earth, the first time it was a flood, the next time it will be a fire. As to Jesus coming to the earth, the first time it was to live and to die. And the next time, it will be to rule and reign. God's word was right about the first coming, and God's word will be right about the second coming. Don't ignore the facts. The second challenge from Second Peter 3, 9 and 10, don't miss the boat. <laughs> Peter points out that God is not limited by time like man is limited. 
Peter also points out that God will keep his promise to return to the earth a second time. And he says, Beloved, don't forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. But the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness. He's just being long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Warren Wiersbe says this, God is not limited by time the way we are, nor does he measure it by our standards. When you study the works of God, you can see that he's never in a hurry, but he's never late. The delay of his coming is not because he's unable to come back or because he's unwilling to come back. It's because he has a plan. It's because he is patient. It's because he wants others to come to him in faith. He's waiting for us who know him and his love and his forgiveness to tell others about him. You see, God is sovereign, and God is waiting, and God is patient. But God is also coming back, and his return will be unexpected. Jesus said his coming will be like a thief in the night. The rapture will be like a thief in the night, and many will be left behind. When Jesus raptures believers in Christ up to heaven, many will be left behind to go into the great tribulation. Larry Norman wrote it this way, A man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill. One disappears and one left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. The father spoke. The demons dined. How could you have been so blind? There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. Are you ready? Have you placed your faith in Christ? Now is the time. Sharon, my wife's sisters, did a recording of this song, and this is how they closed the song. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left. Oh, my dear podcast friends, when the rapture occurs, I hope you're ready. I hope you've placed your faith in Christ. I hope you will not be left behind. Well, that's it for today, my friend. This is Dr. Harlan Betts wishing you a great week and God's blessing. Before I sign off, I want to express my deep appreciation to you for being a part of my podcast family. I'd love to hear from you. You can leave a comment. You can contact me at harlanbetts at gmail.com. You can leave a comment on my Facebook page, Wisdom from Above with Dr. Harlan Betts. Please share the Wisdom from Above podcast with your family and friends or on your Facebook and Instagram. And and keep looking up and keep seeking wisdom from above.